1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apec. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they heard that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home, and there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of, the Is- of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he <clears throat> who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there also has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hopni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. 
And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Lord, we ask for your help now as we study through this passage together. Lord, as, as uh, Lord, we consider what it, what it means not just for the hearers of this, um, this book, Lord, for Samuel, but Lord, even for, for us as we live our lives um, here in the Bay Area for your glory. And Lord, I just ask that you would, uh, Lord, minister through me, your messenger today, that my words would reflect your truth and that your people will be strengthened and encouraged and challenged, Lord, by what we see in this text. So, Lord, would you be glorified, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, <clears throat> three, weeks and I, three weeks ago, my wife and I stood in the chapel at Christ Church University in Oxford, England. Uh, some of you may be aware of that particular place. It's uh, where much of the Harry Potter movies were filmed. Um, inside the buildings there. You wouldn't necessarily notice that from the outside. But as we toured that particular university, we were able to go into the chapel, and it was a, a, man, a magnificent chapel, just beautiful. The architecture was um, incredible, um, ornate, um, old. Um, and then you looked up at all the, the, the stained glass windows, and you could see these stories depicted up there. There was David and, and Goliath, there was Jesus feeding the 5,000, there's Samuel serving Eli in the temple, which I thought was appropriate, um, there was Thomas touching the hand of Jesus, Gideon uh, laying out his fleece, Paul uh, laying hands on Timothy, the Last Supper, and then various depictions of Jesus on or around the cross, and then rising from the tomb. And, and as you, you look around at this, this incredible building and its beautiful architecture, um, you're just amazed at uh, the, the incredible intricacies and, and all the effort and the time that was put into to building this facility. And the interesting thing is all across England, there are these beautiful chapels and beautiful cathedrals or, or abbeys all over the place. We went into smaller ones, we went into bigger ones. But what was interesting was in this particular place, there was a placard for those who were visiting, and it was really there to help people um, who really didn't have a concept of Christianity. And so they wanted to make sure that in this place you understood what Christianity was about. And so to explain Christianity, they said, well, Christianity is about a man by the name of Jesus, and this is how they summarized it. Jesus is a human being whose life uniquely manifests the life, love, and being of God. Now, that, friends, is a very weak and distorted view of Jesus that relegates him to the place of simply being a human being that we should somehow choose to follow. It's known as the Jesus is our best example view which denies his deity and his authority. And what was staggering as I read it, in fact, my wife read it first, and she sat down. And she sat down. I was like, why are you sitting down? Then I read it, and then I sat down. Because you're kind of taken into this place that is so beautiful, and yet the glory of the cross, the glory of the true gospel has gone. And what we found is that people love their churches. 
but they didn't love the gospel. And it's a sad reality that the gospel has disappeared from the physical buildings that are called the church. And friends, our text today is going to speak much to the same reality. And so this morning, as we, as we consider 1 Samuel chapter 4, um, we want to just to lay a couple of foundational truths or, or statements out. Uh, I might want to say three significant factors that, that, that gain our attention as we look at this particular uh, chapter. And, and the three, I'll just mention them quickly. There's the introduction of the Philistines. There's the emphasis on the Ark of the Covenant. And then there is the mention of the two sons of Hophni and Phinehas. But let's think, first of all, about the Philistines. This is the first time in the book of 1 Samuel that they have come up, although they are not new to the record of Israel's history. In particular, you're going to find them um, talked about in the book of Judges repeatedly. Okay, But who are these people? Um, they are... Uh, as it says up here, a seafaring people who landed on the southwest shore of Canaan. They settled in five coastal cities, two of them actually further inland, but there's Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Ashdod. And I remember when I was in Israel doing a tour over there, we went to a place that you could overlook the plains, and the land down there was plush. And it's not surprising that that's where they settled because it was a fertile area in that western coast. But like I said, they were a seafaring people. They were actually very technologically advanced. And, and so they had some superiority to Israel in that sense. They worshipped the man-fish god Dagon, which we'll find in chapter 5. And we can ultimately say that they were the arch enemies of Israel at that particular time. There was this constant struggle between the Philistines and Israel. So that's the first thing we want to recognize who they are. We're going to see them more as we go through the book of Samuel. Secondly, there's the Ark of the Covenant. All right, This is actually the second time the Ark of the Covenant has been mentioned in Samuel. The first time was when we saw Samuel where he was sleeping in the context of the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark now transitions the focus on Samuel to Itself. It is the ark now that is going to be the focus in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and a couple of verses in chapter 7. So this is a study in archaeology, if you might want to say. The next few weeks is going to be that. Understanding the implication of the ark in the life of Israel. So what do we know about the ark of the covenant? Well, the ark of the covenant um, is, I'm going to say, or can be point to three realities. First of all, God's rulership, and that comes from this, this idea of, of these, these cherubim that are sitting um, on the actual Ark of the Covenant, and, and the idea that, that God is there present with them in the midst of them. In fact, as, as it was described in this passage here, um, the Ark of the Covenant was described as the place where God dwells, where his presence is, Okay? Then there's God's revelation. In the ark was copies of the uh, Ten Commandments. And God promised also to speak to Israel through Moses um, at the ark of the covenant. The third thing is God's reconciliation. This, this, this mercy seat. We sang about this today. That is through the ark and through the, the mercy of God. It, um, once a year, 
the high priest would go in and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, providing covering and appeasement for all of Israel at that point in time. And so this ark was created in the wilderness as they were creating the tabernacle and was the, you might want to say, the physical representation of the spiritual presence of God. And as the people of Israel would go through and do what God wanted them to do, oftentimes what would happen is God would send out the ark in front of the army and they would follow the ark, okay? So it's important just to kind of begin to get an understanding of what the ark of the covenant is about. Now we look back in the history of Israel, we also note that the ark was a sign of God leading his people. Just write down Numbers 10, 35. And here we find it says this, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So there was something about this ark that was the representation of God on earth for these people. Then, as we read this passage, um, you probably got this, Hophni, Phineas, and the ark all go hand in hand. In fact, they are mentioned five times in this chapter. Now, knowing the story so far, and just kind of listening to what's taking place, when you see Hophni and Phinehas, and you see the ark together, and you remind yourself of what has already been said about Hophni and Phinehas, you kind of know what's coming, right? You have an anticipation of what God is about to do. And ultimately, we'll see that I think Eli is already there also. So just with that kind of backdrop, just thinking about the, 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 the presence of the Philistines, the, the, the uniqueness and, and the specialness of the Ark of the Covenant, and then the, this, this, this kind of repeated presence of Hophni and Phinehas in this passage, along with the Ark, I think it's... it's uh, I think we're ready to kind of jump into the text. And by the way, those are the, the passages that... We find those, uh, those connections with Hophni and Phinehas and the ark together. But let's look at this now in three scenes, because the structure really breaks this down to three scenes. First of all, there's the battle scene. Then secondly, there's the, the priest scene, where we'll find Eli. And then there is the birth scene, where we'll find Phineas's wife. Okay? So let's look, first of all, at what I'm calling the ark and a desperate army. The ark and a desperate army army. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and they encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now Aphek is about 25 miles west of Shiloh. Remember Shiloh at this point in time is Grand Central Station for Israel. It's where the temple or the, the tabernacle is. It's where uh, the, the world of Israel is, is, is flourishing now. So this is 25 miles west Ebenezer's near there, but uh, far enough away that the two armies can, can set up shop, so to speak, and be ready for battle. The Philistines, in verse 2, drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the, before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now, just want to pause there. I know we've read through this chapter, and we've seen another number of deaths, and so 4,000 may not seem like a lot, but this was a heavy defeat. All right, this was a significant loss in battle against their arch enemies, 
the Philistines. It was devastating to them. How would this news fall on the ears of the Israelite leaders? How would they respond? What would they think? And questions they're going to be asking are, who has defeated Israel this day? And who has Israel been, uh, or why has Israel been defeated today? So I'll, I'll put those questions up for us here, and we're going to consider those questions as we move through this passage. Look at verse 3 now. And when the people came to the camp, okay, this is after the battle, and all these people died. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Did you catch that? Who did they attribute their loss in battle to? Was it the Philistines? No, it was the Lord. So they at least had enough sense to recognize that God was doing something here, that he was the one behind their defeat. Okay? Now the question is why? Why had God allowed this to happen? Now this was not the first time the leaders of Israel had asked this question. In Joshua 7, in particular verse 11, the answer to the question of why have we lost the battle is simply Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So there, Israel lost in battle because of their sinful behavior. Okay? Another place would be in Judges chapter 2 and verse 20. And this is what we find there. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. So again, it was sin among the Israelites that resulted in their defeat. And it was God who has been attributed to be the actual agent of that defeat. All right, now we go back to our passage. And we have to ask ourselves the question, all right, they attributed their defeat to, to God, but are they now going to turn to God and recognize the reason for their defeat is their own sin? You would think that they would be looking for an answer in themselves, in their conduct, conduct in something about their behavior. In other words, they should be looking at the fact that everyone was doing right in their own eyes, that the worship of God had been corrupted and perverted into immorality under the care of Hophni and Phinehas in particular, they should be remembering the word of the Lord given to Samuel about the wickedness of Eli's house and that God would judge them. Because that word, if you remember, went to all Israel. Okay? So they, they should be thinking that way. But what is it that they do? How do they respond? They should have been doing some soul-searching that would turn into repentance, but for some reason, they choose to ignore it. And instead, what do they do? Now, in the, in the judges' accounts, what you have are, is the sin cycle, and the sin cycle would, would be, you know, there'd be sin, there would be oppression, um, there would be a cry out for deliverance, God would deliver them, be a time of peace, there'd be sin, then there would be... Uh, oppression, and this, this cycle would go on. So we're at the place right now where, there is, where there, is, <clears throat> there is sin and there's oppression, but there's a need to cry out. But rather than crying out, 
They don't do that. Instead, what do they do? Notice what it says. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. What they're saying is this. Let's harness the power of God and go into battle victorious. He has promised to deliver us. He won't let us down. And if we go into battle and we lose, it won't be our fault. It will be his fault because he is with us in the battle. So the people sent to Shiloh, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and brought from, the, from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, there's his presence described, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. I mean, if you're reading this for the first time, you're just like, oh, this, isn't, this, this just isn't looking good at all. There's so many little factors that are just kind of layering up here to say this is not going to be a good day for Israel. So did you notice, though, how the narrator takes time to describe what the elders of Israel decided to do? He doesn't say, so the people brought the ark of God. No, it's like he wants to linger on the incredible significance of this object that they were now bringing into their battle camp. He, he describes it as the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. In other words, I want you to see exactly what it is and whom it is that you are willing to bring into your presence like this. And then, as if to shock the socks off of us, we see that it is Hophni and Phinehas that are actually bringing the ark to this place. Now, we shouldn't be surprised when the spiritual leadership had been so... Um, had been so consumed to allow corruption and perversion to take place in the, in the tabernacle, to allow this, this immorality to, uh, to go on continually, and really to disregard the voice of Samuel, the only one who was at least somewhat speaking the word of God at that point in time. Seems like everyone was okay with it. Now verse 5, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. So the earth resounded. You just think about this. What they're saying is, we have the ark. Yes! We have the ark! Now, I was just thinking about this in modern contemporary terms. Much of the Marvel comic movies that are coming out today are all about harnessing the power. If we can just have this power, then we are mighty in battle. We want the power, and guess what? We've got it. We have the ark. Woohoo! Yes! In other words, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? We've got the ark. Now, that's kind of what the first battle looks like and the result of that. Now, let's jump into what I'm calling the, the second battle, at least picking it up here in this place. Because there's something now going on in the Philistine camp. And it's hard to believe what we're told here, but the noise of celebration in the camp of Israel was so loud that the Philistines heard it. But we need to pay very close attention to how it affects them. Let's continue reading now at verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? I mean, usually when an army is defeated, they're not rejoicing. 
There's something turned upside down here. And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? The Philistines, like most people groups at that time, were territorial in their understanding of gods. So it's very much like you know, each nation had their own god, and that god kind of, kind of ruled that territory. And you really did not know who was going to win the battle, uh, and, because the gods were the ones that ultimately were the ones that would decide those things. And so uh, add to that then that all gods in their eyes were to be respected, even though this was the God of Israel, little g, right? Um, they were going to respect that God because when they were victorious in battle, they would take those gods to themselves and they would set them up in their own temples and worship those gods that they now had harnessed. Okay? And we'll see that playing out in chapter 5. Okay? So you, we're trying to get the mindset here of the Philistines. The idea of the Philistines wasn't necessarily to destroy the God of Israel, but wouldn't it be great to have the God of Israel as an added power? But they're afraid. And they're like, woe to us. I mean, this is, this is not just the God of Israel. Notice how it continues. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Aha! The reputation of the God of Israel is still lingering about 200 years later. Now, isn't it ironic that the Philistines have a greater understanding of the God of Israel than the Israelites have about the God of Israel? There's a respect by the Philistines that they have about this God, this mighty God. But Israel has played the harlot, has gone wandering, has allowed immorality and perversion to take place in the temple where their God resides. I should say the tabernacle where their God resides. There's some irony going on here. Now how do the Philistines respond? Verse 9, take courage and be men. That almost sounds like Joshua, doesn't it? Oh, Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you, be men and fight. And so even with the prospect of going up against the mighty God of Israel, the Philistine muster up their men to take courage. And they lay the, the warning of slavery out there as motivation for fighting well that day. Verse 10 and following. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, had died. So friends, there was a fourfold result here. Let me just repeat it one more time. Israel is defeated. Is that good news or bad news? Well, it's, it's bad news to the people that are there, right? There was a very great slaughter. 3,000 soldiers died. Bad news. The Ark of God is captured. Really bad news. Hophni and Phinehas die. That's kind of like a side note bad news that fits the whole flow of the story. Now, what's going on? What has just happened? And this is where we're, we're going to try and 
work our way into this part of the, of the text and, and, try and try and wrestle out the application that, that God wants us to see here. Okay, what is going on? What has just happened? Put it this way. Israel is guilty of what I'm calling rabbit foot theology. Okay, Israel's guilty of what I'm calling rabbit foot theology. Taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle was a way that the Israelite leaders were attempting to twist God's arm to do what they wanted him to do. It wasn't faith in God, but it was superstition. It was an attempt not to seek God, but somehow to control him and to coerce him to do their bidding. It wasn't an attempt to submit to his guidance, but to use him for their own purposes. Rather than deal with the sin in the camp, Hophni and Phinehas, by falling on their knees, repenting and crying out to God for mercy, they chose instead to use God as their battle rabbit's foot. Thinking that simply having his object, that they had God himself. But they went into battle with the ark, but they went into battle without God. Now, friends, they had forsaken God, and God had forsaken them. Turn in your Bibles now to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. You say, where are you getting this from, Rod? Well, Psalm 78, one of the things you can do is in the Psalms, you actually find some, some interpretation of what is going on. And what you have here in Psalm 78 is a little bit of interpretation as the psalmist goes through the history of Israel and he's going to come at verse 56 here to this particular season in the history of Israel. And here's what he says. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. And I think, I think the psalmist here is encompassing even things that are taking place in the book of Judges. Okay? He forsook, sorry, when God heard, he was full of wrath and utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. And this is yet to happen here the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity. What is his power? That's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. His glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Some of that stuff is still yet to, to, to unfold. But the point here is this, that, that the psalmist looks back at this time and he recognizes that God was doing this to Israel because of their sin. And because of their sinfulness, he was willing to remove his power to captivity to put his glory in the hand of the foe. So how are we guilty of rabbit foot theology? And I'm going to try and 
just build some examples here, and, and, and hopefully enough will, will be there to kind of give us some perspective. Because th- this is, a, this is a, a nuance that we must be careful about. This happens easily if we're not careful. And in fact, we're living in American Christian culture that loves rabbit foot theology. So let me give you an example. I'm reminded of the stories of the Crusades where giant crosses were made in order to take out in front of the soldiers going into battle. And as long as the cross was up, they knew that God was with them. Okay, it's very similar to the ark, right? But what happens now is your trust is not, no longer in God, your trust is in what? The cross. And then as, I, as I've read, just in my time about the the, the battles that took place, I want to say, in England and in Scotland and places like that, and even across Europe, um, priests would stand before an army with a holy relic, a silver, a sliver of the cross, a saint's fingernail, a chalice that was used at the Lord's Supper, so to speak, praying something like this, may the finger of Saint Sebastian give us power to win this battle for God and country. See, now it's no longer God it's the relic, and it's the relic that we're putting our trust in. I don't know if you've ever been in the context of a Catholic church where they have a relic, and they're bringing the relic out. Oh, we got the relic, we got the relic. What about the relic? What about God? What about God who sits on his throne, who is completely sovereign? That is where our focus should be, but it's easy to get things sidetracked. And that's what happened in these kind of a contexts. That's the whole point of the, the, the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, where, where the, the Nazis are trying to jump in before Indiana Jones can because they want to harness the power of that ark. And even in that story, Jones' psychic, Marcus Brody, he says this, an army which carries the ark before it is invincible. So it's the ark that has the power. Forget God, it's the ark. Now, what's happening in these situations is an attempt to somehow harness that power of God for one person's or a a nation's own personal benefit. To put faith in a formula, in a discipline, in a special uh, object, but not in God. This rabbit foot approach to God could also be described as power religion. It's another way that it's described. But God has called us to be people of faith, That is to live our lives trusting in God. According to the Bible, the purpose of our faith is to bring us into a saving knowledge of God that we might grow in holiness and that we might serve the Lord while making our pilgrim journey ultimately into heaven. Knowing God, growing in holiness, and serving the Lord and his gospel are the the Bible's priorities for the Christian life. But that's not always the case with rabbit foot theology or with power theology or power religion. It attempts to somehow harness the power of God for personal benefit, for selfish benefit. So I've tried again now to to play this out in in more practical ways. Think of it this, this way. You have a sick person who may not even be a believer. And they may not have considered Christianity at all, but... They think that if, if they would simply pray to this God of Christianity, that, that somehow in doing that, they'll tap into some power that will heal them. 
See, it's, it's not so much about I want to bow down and worship God. It's simply what prayer do I need to make in order to harness that power because I have a need. That's rabbit foot theology. That isn't true Christianity at all. A businessman, his, his business is struggling to keep afloat, and he's told by a friend, listen, if you follow God, God will take care of all your needs. You just need to, you need to pray, and, and he'll, he'll turn this business around. And so this businessman says, you know, I've tried all sorts of different things. All right, I'm going to pray because I want my business to succeed. And so I pray not for the purpose of being humble and submissive to God, but because I want to harness the power that is there so that what I think is important can be revitalized by that power. Let me just step back a little bit. Do we believe that God is powerful? And are we as God's children called to come to him and seek his help for the things of life? Yes. But are we also not to be submissive to his will? Because there are times when he wants us to go through sickness so that we can declare his glory. And there are times that maybe a business needs to fold so that God can be glorified. So there's a difference going on here. There's a huge difference. Let me give you another one. A student preparing for that important final exam turns to God in prayer, which I think all of us have done in our years of life. Um, and we're, we're, we're leaning on God's power somehow to make the questions on this exam easy, as if God can change the ink on the pages, right? That's what we want. Change it, all right? And somehow mysteriously move my hand to get the right answer and that kind of... See, we're praying in a rabbit foot theology way. Rather than saying, God, I, I, I've been diligent, I've studied, I'm doing this for your glory... Help me to remember the things that I'm supposed to remember and to, to just to, to concentrate and to do the best I can and, and put my, just put whatever is in my future in your hands. Okay, what we typically do, though, is we pray for somehow God to magically work. And ultimately, that the person who's grading this or the machine that's grading this will somehow make mistakes so that we will benefit. Okay? Yeah, it's a rabbit foot theology. We're trying to harness the power of God for our own selfish purposes. All right, here's another one. A basketball coach huddles with his Christian high school team before the big playoff game and prays, Lord, we ask that you would bless us today with a victory, that as we shoot, you'll guide the ball into the basket, and as we defend, that you would provide an extra pair of hands to swat away the balls. We laugh. That kind of stuff takes place. Because it may be good for that team to lose. And God may want that because he's trying to build some spiritual character into the young men that may be a part of that team or maybe the coach that's on that team or maybe for other reasons that we wouldn't even know. But somehow we think that the God that we worship has to always be there at our beck and call to do our bidding, and we just have to harness that power, and he, he has to do it for us. See, that's what's going on here with these Israelites. You've had sin in the camp, and your leadership won't do anything about it. You've participated in it. It's ongoing. The very same guys that were 
prophesied against are still carrying the ark into your camp. And you're rejoicing out, oh, we have this wonderful ark. Let's bring it home a little bit more. How many of us are walking in sin, but we're still carrying a Bible? Or we're walking in sin and we're coming into church thinking that somehow carrying a Bible or coming into church will somehow have this power that it will affect things. And God is saying, no, 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 no. You're missing the point. Is church a good thing? Absolutely. Is the Bible a good thing? Absolutely. But we've twisted it now into this rabbit foot to accomplish what we want when that is not how God works. And here's one he'll home. A pastor getting ready for his sermon might say to God, I think I prayed this prayer this morning, I've spent hours in prayer and fasting, hours in study and research. I have carefully crafted this sermon, I mean, including plenty of scripture references and quotations. So God, now, you must speak through this sermon so that people will get saved. In other words, if people don't get saved or they don't change as a result of the sermon, it's not my fault. It's not my part. You're the one that has to do it. See, this is all subtle stuff, isn't it? And it's easy just to kind of trip over and take the things of God and make them into rabbit foots that we might kind of keep in our pocket. Let me just continue pushing this a little bit. But in even simpler terms, God, I put that money in the offering plate. Now you have to bless me. God, I read that chapter in your Bible. Now you must help me with my problem. God, I went to church, sang the songs, fasted for two days, read your Bible every day for a week, why are you not answering my prayers? Each of these examples, again, is a subtle distortion of what God has called us to. And they relate to things that God calls good, right? Was the Ark of the Covenant a good thing? Of course. Is prayer a good spiritual activity? Yes. Is giving to the church something that God requires? Yes, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful way to, to worship God but none of them guarantees the power of God to be mediated on our terms. And that's what Israel wanted. They wanted the power of God to be mediated on their terms even while they were in the throes of sinfulness. So they thought that simply having the ark in the midst of the army would somehow harness that power. Another pastor by the name of Richard Phillips says this, a sure sign of those who practice power religion or rabbit foot theology is an emphasis on religious and spiritual techniques. So if you use a technique, use a gimmick, if you do this, do this, God has to, see? If you pray this many times, I think the one that I, I remember is the prayer of Jabez, rabbit's foot theology. I pray this prayer, God, you have to expand my borders. Well, my borders have been expanded in different ways than I think that is supposed to be applied to, but I'm still trying to work on that. But that's a total misapplication of what that passage is all about. And so it becomes this spiritual mantra that people are praying and saying, God, now I prayed this prayer, you have to do this. And guess what? Christendom loves that kind of stuff. It works well on the side of mugs and T-shirts, but that is not what God is calling us to. We must be very, very careful. 
So that's the ark. The ark and a desperate army, and in their desperation, abuse the very object that God has given them to be the symbol of his presence among them. Secondly, let's notice the ark and a defeated priest. We won't spend quite as much time here, but um, it is certainly worth looking here. Look at verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. He was, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Now, there's a number of things that are said in this chapter that, that cause you to think. How is it that Eli, being so old and without the ability to see, can be sitting watching? Okay? So don't think about watching as necessarily visual. Think of watching as anticipating, as waiting, as wanting to hear. Okay? This man of Benjamin then comes from this battle line, and he, he comes with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And I think that's not necessarily meaning that he's been in the battle, that's probably true, but what do torn clothes and dirt on the head signify? Huh? Mourning, all right? And, and in that culture, mourning was something that they, you know, they would do. So he probably saw that the battle was going the wrong way and all the devastation that had taken place, and he found himself in, in a place, and he, he mourned before God about what was happening. And he comes in this, this, this kind of disheveled state but he goes right by Eli. Now, we're told here that Eli was sitting on the seat watching and that his heart trembled for the ark. So why is Eli trembling? First of all, I would suggest to you that Eli is trembling um, because he was aware of the prophecies that were made against his family and that he was seeing, the, in a sense, that the planets aligning here, that judgment was about to begin on his house. So I think when Eli is sitting there watching, he's anticipating hearing the bad news from his perspective about his sons. Secondly, we're told here that he knew that the ark was in danger. All right, so there's some things about Eli that we recognize that, that he, wasn't, he wasn't totally off, right? I mean, he did, did speak to his sons, but he didn't confront them and deal with them like he should. But he had some awareness of, of what God required. And he had enough sense here to recognize what's going on here with the ark is not good. He was trembling at the ark. Now, just a little pause here, right? In the past, in Israel's history, the ark did go out into battle with the armies of Israel. But that was only when the Lord said, take the ark and go do such and such. That's not what happened here. And, and it seems here that Eli was aware of the way in which the ark was, was taken from Shiloh, that city that he was in, and was going to be used in battle. Now, um, <clears throat> let's continue reading here. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. And now Eli was 90 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He probably didn't say it that way. He probably said it in a much more somber tone. He who brought the news answered and said, Israel 
has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. It's a really somber moment, isn't it? Now, we're not told all the things that were bouncing around in his heart at that point in time. I'm sure that there was sadness. I'm sure that there was despair. I'm sure that there was horror. I don't think that when we sin or when we allow sin, that we really grasp the impact that that sin will have and its rippling ramifications. Did Eli think in not dealing with his sons, that the end result would be that the Ark of the Covenant would be captured by the Philistines. Because there's a huge direct connection here to those things working together. Our sin affects other people. Your sin will affect other people. It has rippling effects. And that's why we want to deal with it quickly. That's why we want to restore relationships quickly. That's why we want to be honest and confess our sins to one another quickly. Because we don't want the rippling effects to continue. We want to harness them as quickly as possible. But sometimes even that is difficult. Now how did Eli get to this place where God would ultimately judge his family line? It happened the way it always does. One step, one step. One decision, one compromise at a time. He didn't just get up one day and say, you know what? I'm just going to let my sons be this way. No, little compromises along the way. Little steps of decision, all right? Paul expresses the same truth in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8 this way. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever, a, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, or, or will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You've probably heard this before, but it's worth mentioning this little kind of poem or statement. First we sow, then we reap. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a lifestyle. So a lifestyle, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. In other words, one of the lessons that we can learn, even from this end of Eli's life, is that we would be warned that little decisions, little compromises, lead to greater consequences and greater conflict and greater difficulty down the road. And he's having to face that as he hears the news. And let's just, just go back again and let's just, just hear the account of what this man says. Israel has fled from before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of, the, 
uh, Ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned it, the Ark of God, he fell over backwards. So, so this, this is not good news at all. But it's very similar news to what we saw at the end of the battle scene, isn't it? So Eli's problem wasn't, wasn't because he made one huge life-changing mistake, as, as I mentioned. No, it's, it's all these little things that he, he did. So if the formula is true, so a thought, reap an action, then we must respond to Eli's predicament and our own way by listening to what Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We want to sow good thoughts. We want to sow good actions. We want to get to the beginning of things, right? And listen, how you feel and how you behave is all ultimately a result of what you've been thinking. So think and have and develop the mind of Christ. And be careful about the influence of the world on your life because it will fashion and shape you according to its mold rather than God's. And then we have the ark and a despairing mother. The ark and a despairing mother. This chapter is a depressing, repeating drum of bad news for Israel, isn't it? <laughs> 34,000 soldiers have died in battle. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have died. The ark is captured by the Philistines. The head priest dies at the news of the capture of the ark. Could things get any worse? Could there be any more heartache this day in Israel? And the answer to that question, sadly, is what? Yes. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news of the ark, or that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born, you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now what we have here is not only a very sad picture of the birth of a son, but also a picture of the plight of Israel. Israel has, she has no mother, no father, no grandmother, no grandfather. So, so I'm talking about the boy, right? Has no mother, no father, no grandmother, no grandfather, no uncle, or any family to raise or support him. He's left as an orphan. When God departs from Israel, Israel is left as an orphan. The father is gone. In the same way, because of sin, Israel is orphaned in a dark and dangerous world without the benefit of God's covenant care. And add to that the Ark of the Covenant, the visible symbol of God's uh, 
presence has been captured. So in her grief and despair, she reflects on her circumstance and, and names the child Ichabod, which literally means no glory or where is the glory? Her statement, the glory has departed from Israel, indicates that she realized that God had removed his presence and blessing from Israel. The capture of the ark was not the cause, but the symbol of God's self-imposed exile from his people. He had already left them. They didn't take God into battle. They took the object that God had already departed. So none of the other losses, the soldiers, the husband, the father-in-law, compared to the greatness of this loss. This is not a new idea for many people, even Christians. When tragedy strikes or disaster occurs, people are often asking themselves, where was God in all of this? How could he abandon all these people Maybe he isn't so powerful after all. Maybe he just doesn't care anymore. Now you certainly hear that from those who who are not followers of the God of the Bible. Or maybe people who are cultural Christians that really don't go to church, but they have kind of an awareness of of a Christian God. In times of trial and disaster, these are the kinds of questions they're asking. Where where was God? Tell me, where was he? But the Apostle Paul reminds us that those who may struggle to feel God's presence during difficult times um, can be encouraged. He he quotes Moses. He says in in Romans chapter chapter six and following, uh, chapter ten and verse six and following. But the righteousness based on faith says, "Here's what we want to hear: Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, and he gives parentheses there, that is to bring Christ down, or who will." descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, during those times of difficulty, you and I don't need some special manifestation of God to prove that he's present with us. He goes on in verse 8 and says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the, the word of faith we proclaim. In other words, my proof that God is present in those circumstances of trial and difficulty and disaster is not what I see, it's not what I feel, but it's what the Word of God reveals is true. And friends, sometimes we, we're afraid, sometimes we forget and we wonder, where is God? The reality is, God is still present. She is speaking a truth in calling her son Ichabod in reflection of what has happened with God and the people of Israel. So in one sense, God has departed. God has left. But there's more to the picture. There's more to the story about God than that. Now here's what Paul is telling us. He's telling us that the reality of God's presence in difficult times is found in that very word of God. So Phineas's wife is right, but in another sense, she's not right because God had promised Israel some things. He says in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, I will take 
you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In Hebrews 13, reflecting back, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Romans 8, 39, he says, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those things are true. Those things don't change. But, what does it mean then for the glory of the Lord to depart? Can God depart from us? And we must be very careful here to make a distinction between a few important nuances. All right? Nuance number one. I don't know if these are up here or not. Um, yeah, it is. God's omnipresent. God's omnipresence basically is the attribute of God that says that he is everywhere. Where can I go to flee from his presence? Can I go to heaven? No. Can I go down to the depths of the sea? No. I, I can't go and get away from God. Why? Because God is present everywhere. Well, he's God. He wouldn't be present in hell. Well, no, that is not where he dwells, but he certainly has freedom to roam hell if he so desires. Okay? Now, so we must recognize that the glory of God had departed is not saying that God is no longer omnipresent. He is. Secondly, God's promised providence. That's what we just read about. God promises things to Israel and to us about his ongoing providence, that he is faithful to keep his promises to his people through thick and thin. And aren't you thankful for that? But there is thick and thin. And what happens during those thick and thin times? And that's where the third one comes up, and that's this, God's chastisement. This is what we have going on in 1 Samuel chapter 4. God has removed himself as protector and giving of, a giver of blessing. So Israel can experience the departure of God, not in the sense that he is gone as far as his omnipresence is concerned, or that he is not still going to continue his promises with them, but as a means of chastisement because of their sin, he is going to step away and he's going to allow the natural consequences and the oppression of, in this case, the Philistines to come and have their way. And friends, we see that in the New Testament too. Think about the subject of biblical church discipline, Matthew 18. And then the corresponding uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What, what are we told about the person who continues to sin? Graphic language, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Deliver that person what? Unto Satan. I mean, you, you know, our minds are thinking about these, you know, these big fires of Molech, you know, and this person being thrown into this, this abyss. No, all it's saying is this person now is, is, is being disciplined by being removed from the blessing of the covenant family of the church. By virtue of their own decision, by virtue of their own unwillingness to repent of their sin, they step outside that place of protection, that wonderful place of care, and they have to experience life without the benefit and the blessing of the body of Christ. And they get hammered, and that is the discipline that the idea is to cause them, to move them to say, I want to get back under the protection of God's church. 
Now, friends, these principles continue on, but this is all discipline. This is all chastisement, and this is what can happen to a nation, to a church, to an individual. In this case, it happens to a nation, and there are other things going on with some individuals here, too. The city of Shiloh would soon be destroyed, and like at other times when Israel sinned, the Philistines would place Israel under their yoke. And in this case, this is what happens when people persist in disobedience and rebellion, perverting the place of worship, disregarding his word. So this is a warning given to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where they're tolerating sin in their midst, and Jesus promises that if they don't repent that he would remove their lampstand. See, there's, there's, there's a consequence. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a means of, of discipline where God removes things from his people. And I remember standing in Westminster Abbey. This is what I thought of when I, when I stood in Bath Abbey, when Westminster Abbey, in um, St. George's Chapel, which is at Windsor, Windsor Castle. What an impressive building. What a beautiful place. What artwork, what architecture. What an amazing stained glass window. What intricate masonry work. But where is God in this place? can get a tour. There are priests running around. Their prayer is going on. But where's God? My friends, that is, that is probably one of the most sad scenarios that there can be. And to think that we are a church that God has raised up here in Castro Valley, we are just as vulnerable that we could become a place that has all the mechanisms and trimmings of what it means to be a church, but those are simply the, the, uh, the things that make us look like what we're doing actually honors God, but, but our hearts can be far from, from it, and God then would just say, you know what, you're not willing to follow me. You can have all those trimmings, but I'm stepping back. You say, does God do that? And he can do that not only at church, but he can also do that in an individual life. When the gospel is trampled underfoot, when God is relegated to a force or the good within us all, when the focus turns to the beauty and the power of the building, when the worship of God is drifted into the usefulness of God, we have abandoned him, and when we abandon him, he pursues us to a point, but if our hearts are hardened, he will remove his presence. Now, once God has written Ichabod over a nation or over a church or over an individual, is there anything that we can do to see the return of God's glory and power? And what's the answer? Yes. See, this, this isn't all bad news. The bad news leads us to the good news, and the answer here is repentance. No matter the sin, no matter the place that you are in God will hear the prayer of a repentant heart. You want to talk about power. <laughs> a repentant heart crying out for God, crying out to be reconciled with Him, crying out asking for forgiveness and expressing a sorrow for sins committed and a desire to be once again conformed to Him. 
That is sweet on the ears of God. Zechariah 1, 3 says this, Therefore say to them, declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So that is what happened when Jesus went to the cross. As he hung on the cross, he bore the sin of the world and breathed his last breath, saying, It is finished, and darkness descended on the earth. And we, we would in that moment be right to say, Ichabod, God has departed. God removed his, his true glory and from the face of the earth, but, but God was not satisfied with leaving things there. I mean, he even had to look away at all this that was taking place. But the glory of God had not departed. He was coming back. Our hearts may cry out, Ichabod, but God in his grace replies, Emmanuel. God with us. Now, I want to conclude in three ways. One, first of all, a call to be careful. Be careful of power religion or rabbit foot theology that looks to harness the power of God for selfish purposes. You know, if you're going through a sickness and someone calls you up and says, I've claimed a promise and God says he's going to heal and he is. Well, he may. There's a difference between he may and he is. And there's a difference between saying he is and I believe that he can. Okay? But once we get to the place where we're saying he is, then we're, we're jumping into rabbit foot theology. And friends, that will destroy your faith in God. How and why? When maybe... You aren't healed. And you say, now where is God? What am I left with? Can God heal? Absolutely. Do we pray for his healing? Absolutely. But guess what? God is a good God, and he knows what is best, and he knows what he's doing. And his children humble themselves before their mighty God and say, God, even in my suffering, even in my distress, I want to glorify you. If healing is what you desire, then please, Lord, have your way with me. If continuing in this struggle is what you desire, Lord, give me grace and strength to endure it for your glory. My desire is to bring honor to your name and to glorify you so that your name, your reputation can be seen by all. And the problem is the church in America typically, by and large, has a really bad theology of suffering. So be careful. It's rampant in our American Christian culture and it must be avoided at all costs. A few years back, one of the churches that I was pastoring, we had um, some other staff that were there. And I remember we were going to have a Good Friday service, and um, these guys wanted to really have an impact on the church during that Good Friday service. And genuine hearts really desiring to see the gospel penetrate the lives. And they're like, oh, this is what we'll do. We'll put, we'll put candles at every window and on the stage. We'll, we'll dim the lights down, and we'll put some contemplative music on going on it's going to be powerful. God is going to be at work. And I kind of sat back and I said, guys, listen, candles, I like candles. You like candles? Yeah, okay. I like candles. Um, dimming the lights, okay. But here's the question I asked them. I said, gentlemen, I have one question for you. If this 
is what you desire to do? What power are you resting on? Or in other words, what is the real power? Do you think that candles will somehow harness the gospel into people's lives? You see the problem with that thinking? That setting the mood is the key to getting into the heart of people with the gospel. No, 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 no. The power isn't in the candle. The power is in the word of God and the spirit of God that works through the word of God. So these are nuances. And did we have candles that night? Yeah, we did. But our motive was not that the candles would somehow get the word into the heart. The motive was you know what, let's make this a special occasion that will be memorable so that we can focus on what? The Word and Jesus Christ and His suffering on the cross for us. Okay? Do you see how you have to be careful? You see how easy it is to drift off? So a call to be careful, a call then to repent, a call to repent. And I, I just want to challenge you, those of you who have been adrift from God to trust what he says, to trust his character, to trust his goodness. It is easy to buy into the, the thinking of rabbit foot theology or, or this power religion and, and feel like you're harnessing the power of God in your life. It's exciting, it's, it's incredible, but the reality is it's unbiblical. And there's a need for repentance. And, and, and in times of distress, in times of suffering, in times of, of trial, if that's where you have gone, I just want to plead with you. I want to encourage you. Do some soul searching and say, God, forgive me for not trusting in your will and your purposes and being submissive to you. Instead, Lord, I tried to harness you for my benefit. Forgive me for that, Lord. I repent of my sin. So this is what I would encourage you is Matthew 11, 28 through 30, that says this, Come to me, Jesus is saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, not the yoke that you want, <laughs> my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We might debate with him about my yoke is easy and my burden is light, but the reality is that he knows what is best, right? And you're, you're, you're in a safe place. You're in a good place when you're saying, God, I don't completely understand, but I want to be submissive to you. Rather than somehow thinking that God is a commodity that you can pull and harness to get what you want. The last thing is this. I know this has been a very somber passage for us to go through, but I want us, I want us to rejoice. And we need to remember the bigger picture of things. Was God done with Israel at this point in time? No, that's the whole point of 1 Samuel, that God is in the process now out of obscurity and in this horrible darkness to raise up a leader who would be Samuel, who would then be the leader that God would use to bring about his chosen king, not Saul, but David. So God is not done. The story is not over. There are more chapters in 1 Samuel. And there are more chapters in your life. And I want to remind you of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, where we're told here, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
all the ups and downs, all the failures that you've had, all the times that you've sinned and you've sinned horribly before God, the times that other people have seen your sin, the times when that sin has only been in your heart, all of those times are all wrapped up in this promise. He who began a good work in you will be faithful. He knows you're not going to be. But he promises that he will be. And he's going to finish the job that he started in you and he will complete it at that day of Jesus Christ. So friends, even, even in the, the hard um, suffering tone of this passage, we can move away from this with joy and with confidence and with certainty that God is still at work. There's still a relationship with him that I can have that is vibrant, that is real, that is fresh, that is forgiven. And... Uh, He's ready and willing for that to happen. Lord, help us today to learn from the failure of Israel. Lord, help us not to be guilty of thinking that we could not do the same thing, but Lord, to realize that those are revealed there for us to show us that we actually do the same thing. And Lord, that we need to remove ourselves from that habit and we need to move ourselves into putting ourselves under your care and under your counsel and being submissive to you and learning more, Lord, about how you deal with, uh, with life and how we are to live our lives for your glory. So, Lord, just, we just ask for, for the Spirit of God to, to have his way on our hearts, Lord, that each person here would leave today pondering and considering, Lord, what it is that you desire for them to do. And, Lord, if, if there's someone who's just really, really struggling this morning that, that needs some specific help and specific guidance, Lord. I ask that they would, they would find someone, Lord, that they can talk to, whether it's me or another elder or another friend that they, they trust and they respect. And Lord, that, that there can be a reconciliation, there can be a, an honest humility about the struggle in this area of, of having these, these rabbit feet, um, theology thinking as part of their walk with you. Lord, I just ask that you would refine us now through your word for your glory in your precious name. Amen.